Amen. Well, we turn to Matthew 23, and we look at the title, which is Woe to the Hypocrites. Aren't you glad you actually made it in person this morning? (laughs) You are not hypocrites. You're here. Now, I kid you. We could make all kinds of jokes about these things, but hypocrisy is a real thing, isn't it? And it's one of the greatest challenges you hear against Christianity. Uh, So, How many times have you heard, well, I would go to church or I would be a Christian if it were not for all of those hypocrites, as if nobody truly lives out this faith? Hypocrisy is real. It's a great accusation brought against the church, and it's one we have to look at seriously, and it's one that Jesus took uh, very seriously, as you see him call out this whole chapter with many grave woes upon the religious leaders, again, for their hypocrisy. Jesus is not pleased with hypocrisy, just to be quite clear. And if it's found in the church, he is calling us to purge it out of our own heart, and that's where it really begins. But to think about hypocrisy, I want to tell you a quick story. Michael Keaton, the actor, uh, he played Batman in a couple major motion pictures uh, when I was like coming out of childhood. And as he was flying, the actor was flying on a major commercial airline, he happened to be seated next to uh, this famous actress. And as the plane hit some turbulence, you know, as it's coming through a storm, uh, the woman was startled and she gasped and cried out, because uh, she was, you know, fearful. And then it, without missing a beat, Mr. Keaton just coolly turned to her and replied, don't worry, I'm Batman. <laughs> and that's funny in so many ways, but namely because his reassurance is just such a farce, isn't it? Uh, it's a joke. He's not Batman, and that's why it's funny. He's a, Batman's a made-up superhero, And Mr. Keaton only pretended to be Batman in front of a camera. And that was going to do no help if this plane was going to go down, right? There's no Batwing he could call. There's no special superhero suit that he could go change into and save the day. Michael Keaton is an actor. He's a pretender. And in that way, if Michael Keaton had been serious, you could call him, biblically speaking, a hypocrite. Hypocrite serves as that summarizing charge and danger that resurfaces in our text here, Matthew 23, over and over again. They're hypocrites. They're play actors. They're only pretenders. As one commentator explained, he he defines a hypocrite biblically for us, and he says this, a hypocrite originally was an actor who wore a mask in a Greek play. That was a hypocrite. They wore a mask in a Greek play, thereby pretending he was something he was not. And so it came to be used for a person who looked one way on the outside, but was something else on the inside. And that describes to a T the great sin of hypocrisy. It describes these Jewish leaders so well, as Jesus points out, but it can easily describe us too if we're not careful. It is so careful, even those who have come to faith, to drift and fall into, in that sense, if we're not vigilant, to hypocrisy. So what we're going to see in Matthew 23 is he brings these woes of condemnation. We're going to find six warnings, six warnings that if we heed these, it's going to keep our hearts from drifting into hypocritical worship. It's going to keep us far away from the damnable sin of hypocrisy. So let's heed these warnings that we would not fall into hypocrisy. And let's look at the first one. And the first thing you need to do or realize as you would stay far away from hypocrisy is this. You need to know that and follow through. Don't make worship about you. How do you keep away from hypocrisy? 
You need to realize and make sure worship is not about you. Do not make worship, your life before God, about you. Really, this is the first great and easy mistake one makes, is you would drift into hypocrisy. You become less focused on Christ, less focused on how you can serve others in Christ's name, and you become quite focused on yourself. You start to think worship is about you. It's about your performance. It's about what others see you doing. It's about play acting then, isn't it? It's about pretending you're the spiritual Batman. That's hypocrisy itself, saying one thing but being and doing another. And so Jesus warns us all here in Matthew 23. Let's look at it. Verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. See, the scribes and the Pharisees had positions of authority. They were the teachers in the synagogue. That's where the the word of God in ancient Israel was taught week after week. They had positions of authority, so he's saying, yes, listens to their teachings, but don't follow their examples. They don't obey the law themselves. It's all just talk. Hypocrites. They don't practice what they preach, so don't be like them. Don't live like them. Don't look like them. And instead of obeying the laws that they teach, what do these Jewish leaders actually do? Verse 4. Here's what they do do. They tie up heavy burdens that are hard to bear, and they lay them on people's shoulders, Jesus says, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. This idea of burdens and weights, this is the very language of legalism. These are terms that are tied to legalism. That is, trying to please God by doing law, by law obedience. And once you think your relationship with God rests on how well you obey His law, a relationship with God is not freeing at all. It becomes a heavy, unbearable burden, especially against His holy and perfect standard, doesn't it? This is a weight that the Pharisees then thrust upon everyone's shoulders. Be perfect like God. Obey the law like us. Be good enough. Be like us if you want God to like you. And then as they taught such heavy things, they then did nothing, nothing to help people deal with them. It's like yelling out to the fledgling, drowning swimmer, just swim harder. Just keep swimming. Do more. Try better. They're already exhausted. They're half drowned. They're weighed down. But they don't care. Why not? Because they don't teach God's Word to help people. They teach it for themselves, how it makes them feel and look before others, you see. Or as Jesus puts it in verse 5, they do all their deeds to be seen by others. They don't do it for God. They don't do it in worship to Him. They do it so people will think highly and esteem them. They're motivated by pride, as verse 5 goes on. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. The phylacteries were these leather boxes that held little Scripture texts. And the idea was that they would literally, the Jews would tie these little boxes to their foreheads and to their arms or their wrists. And it was supposed to serve as them a reminder to obey God's Word, to always have it before, in this case, literally you're between your eyes and with your hands. 
It's supposed to remind them that they were to obey God's word. But they made those boxes really big so everybody else could see, oh, these guys really take God's word seriously. You couldn't miss it. These are the holy guys. And the same goes with these long fringes described here in verse 5. These were the tassels that hung from their prayer shawls or their outer garments even. Again, it was a reminder to obey God's law. But they made sure they made them so long, not just to remind themselves, but to remind everybody else and show everybody else how seriously they take the Word of God. But again, it's all about perception, isn't it? It's all about appearances. They didn't love God or His law. They just loved the respect and attention it gave them. They weren't about God. They were about what God could do for them. So it reads, going on verse 6, And they love the place of honor at feasts, and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. By looking at them, that is these Pharisees, you might assume they love God, but no, they just love all the things appearing to love God gives them, namely honor among their peers. Where Jesus immediately follows to say, this should not at all be what you, that is my people, are concerned about or what you're after. Look at verse 8. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. Worship, serving God, teaching his word. It's not about titles. It's not about respectability. It's about service. It's about a focus on others. It's about a focus on God, and namely a focus away from yourself. Verse 11. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This then sets up with those words, the seven judgments of woe that he now pronounces upon these Jewish leaders. These words of con. con Condemnation that follow and flow out of the rest of the chapter. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Coming some seven times in this text. Why? You teach God's word, you do religious deeds, but not for God, but to be praised by men. And so those who exalt themselves will be humbled. You seek to be exalted among men, you want respect, you want prestige, you want accolades. In other words, you think worship is about you. It's about your performance for all to see, that they might esteem you, to think well of you. Dare say it truly sounds like worship is about worshiping who? About worshiping you. And for this, judgment is coming if you don't repent, if you don't humble yourself. And so we have to ask, lest we be the ultimate hypocrite, well, what about you? How do you feel? Do you, do you know this temptation? For yourself? I mean, why are you here? Even this morning, did any of us have pride coming in this morning? Oh, I'm serious about my faith. Look, I came to church today, or I turned it on online when nobody's looking. Why do you give? Why do you serve in church? Why do you go to a church, say, like ours? Do you take pride in those things? I go to a church that preaches expositionally boring sermons because I'm so spiritual, right? I don't attend those soft, easy churches. I go to a Bible church. Boom, right? Drop the mic. 
Well, maybe then you've lost a bit of touch on what the church and what worship, right, are all about. Don't make worship about you. Second, to guard yourself from hypocrisy, don't misplace your passion. Verses 13 and 15. For when you've drifted into hypocrisy, one of the first things that has happened, you have moved your passion to the wrong things. You've misplaced your passion. And this is dangerous as the first actual woes of judgment he proclaims make so plain. Let's see the first one, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. Instead of then being safe guides that lead people back to God and into his kingdom, they shut the kingdom's door in people's faces. And it's as offensive, it's intended to be as offensive as that sounds. Shut the door right in the face, you get no entrance here. But of course the double trouble is, they shut the door not only on other people's faces, but right in their own face. They are like a wall keeping themselves and others out of the kingdom, even as they hold the very truths of God. These are the keys of the kingdom. You teach God's word, but you're like a wall that keeps people away from God. How can that be? But because they misuse and so misunderstand God's law. They presume that God's law, his commands are meant for us to earn our way to God to justify ourselves, to show ourselves better than other people, to show off that we really are good enough for God. Only then, when in reality, the law was given to show us what? To give us a knowledge of sin, to show us how much we need a Savior. But their use and understanding of the law never seemed to get to that. It was just, do more, try harder, you better keep up. And by that kind of use of the law, nobody's getting into the kingdom. But to be sure, one thing you could not accuse the Pharisees of was apathy. They were passionate. The trouble again, though, is is that their passion is misplaced. Verse 15 now. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. Their passion for the law, that's been passed down to their disciples, their converts, But that passion's only made their students all the more ardent and all the more arrogant of legalists than even they were. Their false teaching and passions were so contagious. But then, too, it's spreading hellishness, damning doctrines. For indeed, that's what it means that they were a child of hell. They were birthed for hell. They were birthed for God's punishment because they cling so tightly, unswervingly to their law, their legalism, their self-righteousness. And in so doing, they cut out from themselves faith. They cut out from themselves dependence on God, on grace and salvation by a Savior because I can handle it myself. Thank you very much. And it's easy though, isn't it? That once you've come to faith and make something so much more important than Christ and the gospel of grace that we lose sight of what really is important and how we do have a relationship with God. For them, it was the law. Maybe for you, it's some theological niche or or position that you think is so important, as if all Christendom hangs in the balance, depending on what you think about John Calvin or your eschatology. Or could it be that all about the church and, and the Christian's political involvement is what dominates your thinking and what you think is so important. And again, that's not a bad thing to even talk about how Christians can be involved in politics. 
but do you talk about it so much? Do you disciple in it so much? Do you post about it so much that it seems to be the only significant thing in the Christian life? What do you love to talk about? What do you love to post about? What would folks assume is the most important thing about you and your Christian life? If they're listening to you, what are they going to say? Oh, this is what Christianity is all about. If you're listening to Pharisee, you'd say relationship with God's all about the law. Listening to you, what you talk about, what you rejoice in, what do they think Christianity is all about for those listening in? Is it even Christ himself? Woe be upon us, even when we make good things and they become God things in our hearts. That's the heart of a hypocrite. Third, the next protection against hypocrisy is this. Don't major on the minors. Don't major on the minors, verses 16 to 24. In a similar vein, another sign that we've drifted into hypocrisy is this. We start to major on the minors. We make spiritual mountains out of mohills, right? And again, the Jewish leaders, they embody this failure in at least two ways. It's in reference to oaths and reference to tithes. We have to summarize here, so we'll move fast. But as it comes to oaths, for example... The Jewish leaders only took seriously promises made by, not by God and by the temple, but by the gold of the temple. At least they took those oaths, those promises, far more seriously than those that even swore by the temple itself. Similarly, we read now down to verse 18. He says, You say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. So what's the thinking here? How does this work? Well, a person who promises, makes an oath, say, by the temple, they would say, well, that's nothing because you have no control over the temple. The temple's not going to fall because you broke your promise. You have no control over that. There's no consequence for breaking your word. But now the gold of the temple? Ah, if you break your word, you could give more gold to the temple. That could cost you something. So swear by the gold instead. Similarly, if you swear by the sacrificial altar in the temple itself... I mean, what's that? You don't own the altar. But you own the gifts, the sacrifices that go on the altar, you see. So swear by the gift. That'll cost you something. So they prize those things that cost you if you broke your word, as really then proving your word far more than they prized a genuine faith and sincere faith before God. And so Jesus criticizes such thinking both times. In reference to swearing by the gold of the temple, look at Jesus' rationale. Verse 17, You blind fools, which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? Like, where's God in this, guys? Oh, when you put it like that, okay. Or look at verse 19 as he references sacrifices in the altar. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Well, when you put it like that, I guess the altar. Right! He's exposing that their perspectives, their values are all turned upside down. That's why he calls them blind. They can't see spiritually. Look how he closes the section. Verse 20. So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Here's the point. Whenever you swear, whenever you make a promise, whenever you speak even, you're making a promise before God always. He doesn't care what you, quote, swear by. To God, your words matter all the time. 
So instead of trying to find ways, technicalities of trying to get out from your truth-telling and trying to find technicalities to get out from following through on your word as if to say, yeah, but my fingers were crossed, Jesus urges us, no, just speak truth and follow through. If you're all caught up in these requirements and stipulations, you're majoring on the minors only to be a cover for your sin when the major is what you should be focused on is this, speak truth. Jesus' next woe makes this analogy even more clear, that you've majored on the wrong thing. Look at verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These things you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Now, to be clear, under the Old Testament law, you were required to tithe, that is to give a tenth of your income. And you didn't get a paycheck with a dollar sign on it. Your income would mainly be food, animals, and crops. And so that might include even things like mint, dill, and cumin, right? And we're talking about a tithe, a tenth, which would mean one out of every little leaf or spice being set aside. You get the idea that this is law minutia for sure. But notice, Jesus does not expressly condemn them for trying to follow through on these tithes, but what does he condemn them for? For their majoring and great focus on this tithes and this law minutia. Why? Because it led to the neglect of the weightier things, the more important matters in God's law. Things so fundamental to God's character and will, things like, I don't know, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. And it's so easy to sit here and criticize them as we read the Bible. Yeah, you get them, Jesus. But is this not true of us? Can it not be easily? Especially, say, in like a conservative, Bible-cherishing church like ours. Again, it can be so easy to be devoted to good things and miss the weightier things. Have you ever had thoughts like this? Have you ever said this? Oh, I'd love to help you out. But I really got to get to so many hours of my personal prayer and Bible study. I got to get those out of the way first. Oh, oh, I wish I could share the gospel more with my neighbor, but I'm just so busy with Bible studies and prayer meetings and classes, I just don't have time to serve my neighbors and tell them about Jesus. Or is it more that we avoid some of the weightier matters in God's law, even trying to hide by good Christian things that are not as significant? that don't cost us so much, or that come easier to us. If you major on the minors, Jesus rather humorously contends, you are like these Pharisees. Verse 24, you blind guides, straining out a gnat and then swallowing a camel. (laughs) You missed it. And you've got a mouth and belly full of camel to prove it. Your focus, your sweating the small stuff, blinded you to the big stuff, the more important stuff, in many ways people doing justice, showing mercy. Again, we can find here another way how hypocrisy is really just selfishness cloaked as devotion. That's the heart of the hypocrite. Fourth, how do we guard against hypocrisy? Don't emphasize externals. Verses 25 to 28. This next warning really just encapsulates hypocrisy, perhaps in its most basic form. It's all caught up in appearances, externals. And in so doing, it misses the most important thing, the heart. Rather, it tries to hide the heart. And that's where the danger comes. 
For in these next two woes, these proclamations of judgment you see, you see this great contrast with what is on the outside with what's on the inside, the place where God actually looks and cares about. So first, Jesus uses the analogy about what makes a clean dish. What makes a clean dish that you would actually want to eat from? Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside, they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Of course, the point is this. The inside of the cup is what really must be clean for you to really care. So, for example, I was working in the garage, and I was working on a car, and I had a cup that I was drinking from. And you have greasy hands, and I'm grabbing the cup. So if you came to the garage and looked from afar, how does that cup look? It looks disgusting. It looks like it has black stuff all in it. It looks totally gross. And yet, I still drink from the cup. Why? Well, the inside is perfectly clean. The water in it is perfect. And that's what matters. The water, the inside of the cup was perfectly clean. The outside, yeah, it was filthy, but that didn't concern me. I still was consuming just water. That's what matters most in your cups. That's what matters most in your dinnerware. And that's what matters most in your worship, far more than the outside. It's what's on the inside. An outside that looks all dignified. You know, you got a tie, you got a suit on, carrying a big MacArthur study Bible. But is your heart pure before God? Jesus expands on this in his next analogy in woe. Verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones in all uncleanness. Again, on the outside, you look beautiful. You look amazing. But inside, you're like a crypt. You're full of dead men's bones. You're spiritually a rotting corpse. Why? Because you've tried to just cover over. You've tried to paint over all your uncleanness, tried to paint over all your greed, all your self-indulgence, all your lawlessness, as if to pretend it's not even there. Jesus makes the analogy plain next here in verse 28, connecting all the dots. So you also outwardly, you appear righteous to others, but within are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Again, this is hypocrisy in its most fundamental form. This is where the idea of pretender or play actor comes in. You portray one thing, but inside you're much different. You're spiritually bankrupt. And the Pharisees were kings at this. But again, any of us can easily fall into this trap. We cover over the sins of our heart with external, mere, looks-like-righteousness things, which are much easier to do. My heart might be far from God. My relationships at home may be a total mess. My secret sins in the dark consume me, but I come to church and I put on a smiley face. I look cleaned up. I dress nice. I can talk theology in church. I can look righteous. At least that's what people think, and you think that's enough. But God sees through all of that. He sees right into the heart, and he says, no, you're spiritually dead, or at best you're dying if you keep holding on to your maybe secret or covered over sins. Your external righteousness does nothing to cover over or atone for the sins in your heart. No amount of dressing up, no matter of dressing up the outside, touches the heart. No amount of church going, no matter of respectable dress, no amount of learning theological lingo, no amount of listening to the right podcasts or having listened to that latest YouTube sermon from whoever, none of that can make your heart right before God. The only way that happens, faith in Christ alone which is something that's on the inside. 
And that means then you have to be honest before God. This is what hypocrites do. They lie to themselves and they lie to God, trying to lie to all of us. To put that down, you need to be honest before God and maybe honest before others about where your heart is. That means you have to confess your sin, of course, to God and to others. You have to plead with God to change your desires, to conform them to his word, because you know you've got a problem. Then, then a proper external righteousness, what people can see on the outside, it'll take care of itself as the righteousness of a Christ-loving heart just overflows to the outside of your life. You bear fruit otherwise. Fifth, don't cling to your tradition. If you want to stay away from hypocrisy, don't be so stuck on your tradition. Now, with that said, tradition's not all bad, to be very clear. The trouble comes when we honor tradition past or above the truth, above the Word of God. And this proved a particular temptation to these Jews of this ancient culture. This ancient culture, which really revered the past and their ancestors. But nevertheless, verse 29, Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and you decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of blood of the prophets. So again, they they revered tradition, That's why they built these monuments and memorials and statutes to honor it. Because they thought they stood with God and those people. When Jesus points out, no, you're just standing with your fathers who were the murderers of the prophets. Verse 31. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers. It's almost as if Jesus kind of taunts them. Fulfill your end of the bargain. Prove me wrong, guys, that this isn't who you are. You act like the very sons of your fathers, murderers that they were. Don't fool yourself. Verse 33, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? In other words, you're sons of the serpent, the devil. And Jesus promises them that in the future, they're going to prove that true, who their daddy is. Look at verse 34. Therefore, I'm going to send you prophets and wise men and scribes. And what are you going to do with them? True to your form, what are you going to do? You are going to some of whom you will kill and crucify, some of whom you will flog in the synagogues and persecute from town to town. That is, these folks will be the very ones that, again, are going to go and hunt down and kill God's good messengers. And they're going to do it starting with the chief messenger, the Son of God, right before them. They prove that they indeed are heirs to the rebellious evil of their fathers. So that Jesus then makes this astounding claim in verses 35 and 36. So that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon these generations." They're going to fill up the measure of their fathers. They're going to finish off what their fathers didn't complete. And so in that sense, all of the murdered of the righteous fall on that generation as they murder the Son of God. They are the consummate rebels against God. And once then the measure of rebellion and murder is filled up, once it reaches the full, then judgment comes. That's how this works. And in the next paragraph, Jesus is going to speak to that too. But just to then pull back and think about this by challenge and application in regards to tradition. And just to sum up this judgment, 
You cannot cling to the past then, to the thoughts of your forebears or ancestors, and just call it good. You're okay. I'm just, I've embraced what I've been taught. That goes with whatever it was the religion of your parents or your grandparents. That doesn't make it right. And God doesn't just pleased with you if you just embrace whatever your parents taught you. And you'd be a hypocrite even to pretend otherwise, at least before what is the God of truth? Because there is a true God, and He's real, and He's revealed Himself in His Word, and He's calling us to trust Him and His Son. And this can be true, this adherence to tradition, even within our own Christian world. That is, neither should you cling to even your spiritual heritage that you've been given, even if it's a Christian one, just because that's the one you received. The real principle is this, you know, whatever your literal or spiritual forefathers said or did or whatever they taught you, here's the issue. Will you humble yourself and whatever you think in your teachings to the Word of God? When God's Word comes and confronts you, it confronts your past. Maybe it confronts your spiritual heroes, your spiritual forefathers. Will you submit to the Word of God? And to be clear, this is coming from a guy, okay? I got two dead theologians that look over my study every time I'm writing a sermon. John Calvin and John Owen look at me, and they don't look happy usually. But I cherish those guys. Most of the books I love most were written by people that have been dead, at least on earth, for a long time. And so I have men I look up to in history. And it's so easy just to adopt whatever they thought because they were really smart, they seem really godly. It's easy then to just find a lane and a camp of people that think like you do and say, oh, that's safe. But the issue is, when God's word comes, will you bow to him and his word? Will you let his word confront your tradition, your eschatological position, your Calvinism, your view of baptism? Will you bow to the Lord Jesus and his word? Or will traditions win out? Sixth, don't harden your heart to Christ. How do you protect against hypocrisy? Don't harden your heart to Christ. This really brings us to the only foolproof protection against hypocrisy. Do not harden your heart to the Christ who's calling you. For that's the thing. Judgment's coming upon Israel, but it's been a long time in coming. But Jesus has been patiently calling to them, trying to woo her back to repentance. But they still refuse. And so now King Jesus mourns over the rebellious city, which would be the capital of the people of God, Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, verse 37, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Note that. You hear Christ's heart in this. How often I would have gathered your children, or other translations have it. How often I longed. He longs to have these rebels turn and to come back to God. I wanted to gather you under my care. He loves rebels, even though they are rebels. And yet, are we surprised? Coming from this Christ, this is who the Lord Jesus Christ is. He came down from heaven for sinners, rebels, like these, like like you and me. Those who spurned him who shut their ears at his words, those who shot his messengers and mocked his message, he came for us. And he's calling still, even if you're a rebel to this moment. Jerusalem, Richmond, oh hardened heart, I long to gather you. 
I long to gather you under my mercy. But what's the problem? It's not with the Lord. He'll take any who will come to his mercy. The problem is there in the end of verse 37. He's longing, he's calling, but what's the problem? He says it, and you were not willing. You didn't want to come. Theirs and our stubborn, hypocritical hearts are the problem. And isn't that really the root issue of all hypocrisy for for every hypocrite? They can't admit that they're wrong. They can't own their sin. And so they have to keep up a facade of righteousness that has nothing behind it. To maybe fool onlooking men, maybe even fooling themselves. But God is not fooled. He sees through it all. And so the hypocrites in the end will not escape the judgment. Verse 38, see your house is left, or is going to be left, to you desolate, a wasteland. And yet, even in the face of all this judgment, there's a word of hope that remains. Verse 39 now, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, though, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. See, judgment need not be the final word, but to escape from wrath that hope to return from God, it all centers around what will you do with Jesus? Will you acknowledge He was the one who came in the name of the Lord, giving the message of the Lord as the Lord? Will you find salvation as you turn to Him? You will, but will you turn? And as soon as you call on Him, as soon as you call Him and see Him for who He is, the blessed Son of God, God's true messenger, giving God's true word, Until you say and see, oh, I was so wrong to tune him out. I was so wrong to reject him. I was so wrong to turn from him. But as soon as you put down that facade, you put down all your pretend righteousness, all your pretended insight into philosophy and your all spiritual superiority. But once you put that down and you see that only Christ can save, that's what he came to do. Then and but only then you can praise God. For surely, salvation and forgiveness and mercy and reconciliation of God or yours, if you trust Christ, Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen one. That's why he came. But it's only found with him. That's how you answer hypocrisy. And perhaps this summarizes it best then. How do you keep and guard your soul against temptations and all the pulls toward hypocrisy? First, Never lose sight of your sin. Never lose sight of that on this earth. You are a stumbling sinner. Don't forget, don't try and pretend you don't sin anymore. Don't start thinking so highly of yourself. You're a rebel. You are totally lost apart from Christ. You were blind in your rebellion. Don't try and hide your sin with dirty rags of self-righteousness. You need Christ still. That's the first thing. Second, though... In light of your great sin, and you see he still saves you, doesn't he become a far greater savior in your eyes? That Christ then stands truly as your greatest love and treasure? I think this was best epitomized in the example of Saul the Pharisee, remember him, who became Paul the Apostle. In Philippians chapter 3, he recounts all the ways that he had achieved a greater self-righteousness than you could ever dream, really. He said in Philippians 3, 
listing his accolades. He was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. He's of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to the zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, he dared to say blameless. But then he encountered the risen, saving Christ. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Come to Christ. Keep coming to Him. Cling to Him. Let go of your sin. Own your sin. Acknowledge your sin every day and every moment. Cling to Christ that He is your only Redeemer. Bless the name of the Lord that sent this Savior and Redeemer to you, sinner though you are. That'll keep your faith genuine. That'll keep you from all hypocrisy. Why? Because that'll stir up in you a genuine love for the one who loved you far more than you knew. Let's praise him for this. Let's pray together. Father, indeed, we do thank you for mercy. We thank you for the mercy that sent Jesus Christ for us. Forgive us for our hypocrisy. Forgive us for pretending or portraying one thing, trying to hide the struggles of our heart. Forgive us. Forgive us for our pride. You see into the heart, your word cuts to the joint and the marrow, the very thoughts and intentions of our heart. You know us better. May we be quick to confess. May we be quick to turn from our sin. May we be quick to run to your mercy. And that we would be genuine worshipers of you. Your words of judgment seem to be harshest for the religious hypocrite. And so may we in your mercy see our tendency to hypocrisy and turn from it and find mercy with you. Thank you for the warnings of this text. May our hearts be pulled in genuine faith to you all the more. Do that because Christ is worth it, because he is a great God who is merciful to us sinners, and it's in his name alone we pray. Amen.